book of Romans in chapter 8. This evening we will read again the first four verses. Uh, We are currently studying verses 3 and 4. These verses are wonderful because Paul is summarizing for us in these four verses the glory of the gospel that he proclaims and that we believe. Uh, Paul is reminding us in a very concise way in these four verses of the mountaintops that he took us through in uh, the second half of Romans 3 and Romans 4 and Romans 5. Those were glorious gospel chapters, and Paul is now wanting to remind us of that. He, he isn't going to, to unpack it to the great extent that he did then. He's rather just reminding us for our own encouragement because he's just been talking about the Christian's battle with sin, and it can be so difficult and, and, and wearying and frustrating And so he wants to encourage us now and say, yes, that is a true part of the Christian life. But don't forget the main thing, which is that you are under no condemnation. And here's why. Look at what your God has done. And that's what we're studying. What has God done so that we as sinners can be right with him? So let's read verses one through four. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Well, I have two questions for you this evening to help us as we think about these verses again. I hope these will be very easy questions uh, for you. Um, They have been very controversial over the last hundred years or so, but I hope for you they're not controversial. Uh, The first one is this. Did Jesus really exist? Now, I hope that's laughable to you. I hope that's a a silly question to you. Was there ever a real historical man named Jesus Christ who walked this earth? Um, You should have no doubts in your mind as to the historicity of Jesus Christ. But over the centuries, and even into our own day, there have been some who have sought to cast doubt on this. Um, How many of you have heard of Thomas Paine? Raise your hand. Thomas Paine, right? Many of you, right? Uh, uh, One of the most influential of the founding fathers of our land. He uh, penned that that document, Common Sense, among others, that uh, were very influential. And uh, Paine said that the whole story of Jesus and his 12 disciples was a fable. Uh, Paine argued that the early founders of Christianity made the whole thing up basing it on the myths of other ancient religions. In fact, he claimed that if you look at the other ancient religions, they often worshipped the sun and the twelve signs of the zodiac. And he said that what the founders of Christianity did is they simply took that idea of worshipping the sun and the twelve signs of the zodiac and turned them into people. 
so that the sun became Jesus and the 12 signs of the zodiac became the 12 disciples. And he seemed to be very convincing, at least to some, because Thomas Jefferson, for example, was one who seemed to have followed pain in believing that theory. Uh, in fact, Thomas Jefferson regularly exchanged letters with Paine about these things. Uh, and not only with him, but with one of the other leading atheists in that day, a man named Count Volney. Uh, he was one of the leading advocates for this idea that Christ was a myth and that there never actually was a historical Jesus. Just under a century ago, uh, in his very influential book, Why I Am Not a Christian, Bertrand Russell said this, Historically, it is quite doubtful that Jesus existed. And if he did, we do not know anything about him. In recent days, a movement called the New Atheism has been influencing our society. And some in that movement have begun arguing in much the same way as Bertrand Russell did almost a century ago. So the late Christopher Hitchens, for example, uh, considered one of the leading atheists of our day, argues in his best-selling book, God is Not Great, that there is little or no evidence that Jesus Christ ever really existed. And so let me ask you again, did Jesus really exist? And then there's the second question. Would it matter if he didn't exist? Now again, I hope that's laughable to you. I hope that's a silly question to you. Here's what I mean. Does it really matter whether or not there was a historical Jesus Christ? After all, we have the idea of Christ we have the stories in the Bible. We have the commands to love one another. We have the, the message, right? We have this, this person called Jesus in the pages of the Bible as a model for us. Does it really matter whether or not he actually existed? Robert Price is a scholar of the New Testament, but he is a New Testament scholar who questions that Jesus existed. In fact, he has written several books about this, uh, one entitled Deconstructing Jesus, another entitled The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man, and the third entitled Jesus is Dead. Now, I want to read you just a little snippet about Robert Price. This is from Wikipedia. This is what it says. It says, A former Baptist pastor... Price writes that he was originally an apologist for the historical Jesus question. So he says, as a Baptist pastor, he defended the idea that Jesus really did exist. But he became disillusioned with the arguments. As the years went on, he found it increasingly difficult to poke holes in the position that questioned Jesus' existence entirely. Despite this, he still took part in the Eucharist every week for several years, seeing the Christ of faith as all the more important because, as he argued, there probably was never any other. Now, did you hear that? Even after this former Baptist pastor began to think that Jesus never really existed, he continued to go to church and to take the Lord's Supper and to celebrate the death of Christ. Why? Because he believed in the Christ of faith. He believed in the idea of Christ, even if it was based on fiction. 
Now, church, this is the ridiculous stuff uh, that many professors, even in so-called private Christian universities, are teaching today. They say it doesn't matter that Jesus didn't exist. It is the idea of Christ that matters. It is is the, the model that we have in the pages of the Bible. We reject a real Jesus, but the Christ of faith we accept. Yes, it's all a lie, but what a wonderful lie. And so we're going to hold on to it. They, they probably wouldn't say it quite that bluntly, but that's, that really is what it boils down to. Yes, it's a lie, but we like the idea of the lie. And so we hold on to it. And so here's my two questions. Did Jesus really exist? And would it matter even if he didn't? Now, I'm going to take just a few moments to make sure we all understand why those two questions should be laughable in our day. And then I'm going to show you why this really, really matters when it comes to Romans 8, verse 3. And how it all fits together. You probably already see it, but just in case, we'll, we'll hit that at the end. So what is the evidence that Jesus of Nazareth really existed as a historical man in the first century? Well, first, there is the evidence of the scriptures themselves, even for people who do not believe that the Bible is holy. For those who do not believe that the Bible is the word of God, the Bible still matters. Because most of those who deny the historicity of Jesus do so by claiming that the stories about Jesus in the Bible were made up by combining a bunch of ancient myths together into one story. So the most common argument throughout the centuries has been this. There are other myths before the time of Jesus that refer to a son of God who comes to earth. There are other myths that existed before the first century that talk about a a person rising from the dead. There are other myths before the first century that speak of a virgin birth. And so it seems obvious to them that what the founders of Christianity did was gather all of these different myths together and say, hmm, let's make one grand story, one great myth, and found our religion on that. But friends, when we read the Gospels or the witness of the apostles to Jesus in the book of Acts, or even as we read the epistles, even if we aren't Christians, even if we don't believe this book is the word of God, if you look at it from an objective perspective, does it come to us in the language of a myth? Does it even sound like myth? How does Matthew's Gospel begin? With a genealogy telling us who the biological, no, I'm sorry, in Matthew it's legal, right? It's the legal ancestors of Jesus through Joseph, according to the temple records. How does Luke's gospel begin? With a genealogy, tracing the biological parents of Joseph, of Jesus and his ancestors through Mary. Uh, this is not the way myths typically begin, by rooting their characters in history. And yet that's exactly the way the gospels begin, What about the fact that in the Gospels we find Jesus interacting with others that we know were real people in history? For example, in the story of Jesus, we find both a Herod who tried to kill him when he was a a baby under two years old, right? And we find a King Herod, son of the first one, who is reigning when Jesus is a man. We know that both of those Herods were real historical people. There's no question about that. 
The same thing for Pontius Pilate. We have the evidence that Pontius Pilate was a very real man. Caiaphas, we read about Caiaphas in our reading in John this morning. We know that Caiaphas, the high priest, was a very real man. He was a historical figure. Do you know how we know he was a historical figure? We have his bones. (laughs) We actually have the sarcophagus with his bones inside of it. And so we know that Jesus, according to the story, interacted with these real historical people. When you're telling a myth, do you normally surround your main character with real historical people? at real historical times and real historical places. That's not the way a myth works. The fact of the matter is, when you simply read through the New Testament, it isn't presented as a myth. John says in 1 John 1 that he saw this man Jesus with his own eyes, he heard his teaching, he was able to touch him in flesh and blood. It's not the language of a myth. Only people who come to the New Testament with a bias that says the supernatural can't exist, that there must not be any such thing as miracles, read it as mythology. If your worldview allows you to believe that, yes, there are laws of nature, but laws of nature can be broken by the one who creates nature, if you come to the Bible with that worldview, the New Testament doesn't even sound like mythology, not even in the least. It's only when it's read through this anti-supernaturalist glasses uh, that it seems to look that way. So there's, there's the Bible just as a historical record that speaks against this. There is the archaeological evidence. Uh, in other words, we can read the Gospels and we can read the claims that they make about the kind of time and the culture that Jesus lived in and then we can see if our archaeological evidence seems to support what the New Testament says or not. Uh, So, for example, I recently heard that one person claims that the Gospels cannot be true history. Why? Because Jesus is described as being in the synagogues on the Sabbath. And this man said, guess what? There were no synagogues in the days of Jesus. They didn't exist until after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. What are you going to do with that? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John says there were synagogues, right? Well, what happened? Through archaeology, we've been able to prove, no, actually there were synagogues before 70 A.D. This person was completely wrong. Right now, archaeologists have uncovered seven for sure synagogues that existed before 70 A.D. There are at least two other findings that they think may have been synagogues before 70 A.D., and that's with only 5% of the biblical locations having been excavated. So you have that kind of evidence that supports the arguments for a historical Jesus Another argument that I also heard, this was, a, this was an episode of the White Horse Inn that I, I heard this on. Um, they claimed that you cannot trust the Gospels as history, cannot trust that Jesus was a historical person. Why? Because he could read. Uh, they said, you know, we have the story, he goes to the synagogue, he opens up the scroll, and he begins to read it. And they say, Jesus was a carpenter's son. He was a commoner. He was one of the regular people of the ancient world, and the regular people of the ancient world could not read. Well, then we have archaeology, and what does archaeology show us? Well, we have uncovered thousands of public inscriptions, thousands of examples of graffiti in Israel from the first century. We have writings from smart people. We have writings from ignorant people. We have writings from rich people. We have writings from poor people. We have writings from people of status. We have writings from people who are of a very low status. In other words, we have lots of archaeological evidence that show us that, guess what? The people of first century Palestine, 
they could read. This was not an illiterate society. And so we are able to use that to show that's not an argument against Jesus' existence. And so there's archaeology. And then there's literary evidence, right? We have references to Jesus in the writings of men in the ancient world, many of whom were not followers of Jesus. The first one that almost always comes to, to people's mind is the writings of Josephus, right? Josephus was this Jewish historian. Um, his, his allegiance was with Rome uh, towards the end of his life, but he wrote this history of the Jews. And in his history of the Jews, he writes about this man named Jesus Christ, and he writes about how these people followed him, and he writes even about how they claimed that he rose from the dead. This was not a Christian man. This was not a person with an agenda uh, to, to promote Christianity, but he records what he knew in his day about what was happening among the Jewish people. Tacitus was a Roman historian and a senator in ancient Rome. He wrote about a man named Jesus who was executed under Pontius Pilate. And so we have these, these references to Jesus, and, and on and on we could go, but I, I hope you get the point. There is a reason that the vast majority of scholars in our day who study the ancient world are in agreement that Jesus did exist as a real person in history. They may deny the resurrection. They may deny the gospel. But the bulk of scholarship in our day does not say that Jesus Christ did not exist. Now, that's popping up more and more in culture. It's popping up more and more on the internet. It's popping up more and more on Facebook things, right? This idea that Jesus didn't even really exist. But folks, don't even let your mind be worried about that. Jesus for sure did exist. And of course, the greatest reason for us to believe that he existed is something more than just what we know from general revelation. It's what we know from special revelation. It's because we have the Word of God itself. We have the Bible not just as an ancient text. We have the Bible as the Word of God, which reveals Christ to our souls. The Word of God, which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so we can have confidence in what the Bible says concerning our Savior. Okay, so Jesus existed, but why does that really matter? I mean, wouldn't it be okay if he didn't exist as long as we have this idea of Christ? Well, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So you, you hear that. Paul has no room for this idea of Christ being mythological. He has no room for a religion that is built on fiction, a, a religion that is built on historical lies. Paul says that if Jesus Christ did not actually, as a man in history, rise from the dead, he says, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Jesus did not exist, there is no reason to keep this Christianity thing going. There's no reason for us to be coming to church like this. There's no reason to believe the gospel. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you're not going to rise from the dead either. 
That's what it boils down to. He says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we who believe such things are the most on earth to be pitied. Because this life is all there is, and here we are living it with our view on the life to come. So he says, everything matters. I mean, everything depends on this. Was Jesus a real historical person who truly rose from the dead? And he says, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, we see that same principle taught here in Romans 8, 3 and 4. Because remember what we saw this morning. Jesus had to come and take on human nature if he was going to make atonement for sins that were committed by human beings. We saw this morning that Paul said that God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why? So that he can condemn sin in the flesh. Jesus had to be a true man, a historical man, an actual man, if he was going to be a substitute for real people, actual people, historical people on the cross. Are you a real person? Do you exist in time and history? Then if Jesus was going to atone for your sins, he had to become a real person who lived in time and history. He had himself to be under the law. He had himself to become one of us if he was going to make atonement for us. And so, young people, if you go to college or university, and people start talking this way, well, we're not sure if Jesus existed and it doesn't really matter. That's malarkey. That's what it is. It's just not, do people say malarkey anymore? That's it's baloney. It's, I don't know what to say. It's, it's bad, okay? Don't, don't believe that. It's just not true. It's not the teaching of, of Scripture. Okay, this gets to the heart of the cross, right? What actually happened at the cross? You see this at the end of verse 3, right? We said there are two things that God did to make sinners right with Him. Uh, without this redemption accomplished, there could be no redemption applied. Without verses 3 and 4, there was nothing that could happen in verse 2, resulting in verse 1. So we couldn't do anything on our own. We were lost. We were hopeless. We were helpless. If there was any hope for us, God had to do it. And we say God did two things. And we saw the first thing this morning. God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And now we see the second thing that God did. He condemned sin in the flesh. And so the question is this, what does that mean? If this is the great thing that God did so that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled, if this is the great thing that God did to save our souls, what does it mean that God condemned sin in the flesh? Well, I'm going to give you two false understandings of these words and then give you the right understanding as I understand it. Um, I, I begin with the negative a lot. <laughs> I begin with the, let me tell you some things that it doesn't mean before I tell you what it does mean. The reason I do that is because shepherds are called to protect the flock. And so just as much as I want to make sure that you see the truth in each passage, I also want us to be protected against error. And folks, we are all prone to error. We are all prone to hear arguments made by others that would lead us astray. And so that's why I often start with uh, errors, with, with negatives. And so I'm going to do that now. Two false views, and then we'll talk about the right view. One false view is this. It says that what God did at the cross was to express His disapproval of sin. 
that that is what is meant by the words condemned sin in the flesh. It means that God was making a statement at the cross. That God put His Son on the cross in order to say to the world, sin is bad. Don't do it. Don't pursue it. Sin is bad. I don't like sin. Now, what do you think of that interpretation? I mean, in one sense, it's absolutely true, right? I mean, surely more than anywhere else in history, God declared at the cross His hatred for sin. Nobody could look at the cross and say that God likes sin. Right? It's evident, it's obvious, God hates sin. But there has to be more to this word condemn than that. When Paul uses this word condemn, he can't just be saying the cross was God shaking his finger, saying you ought not to sin, let me show you that I don't like it. Um, if that's all God was doing, was declaring that he hates sin, you and I are still lost. Because verse 4 says that what God did, He did in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And we saw this morning that the righteous requirement of the law is that we be perfect in the sight of God. Let me ask you a question. If all God was doing at the cross was shaking His finger and saying sin is bad, does that make you and I as sinners right with God? Does that in any way help us in our lost condition? In fact, it just kind of makes it worse, doesn't it? I mean, it, just, it just reminds us of, of how lost we are. It just reminds us of how without hope we are. That doesn't cleanse us of the guilt of our sins. By the way, what is the rule for rightly interpreting a verse? Rule number one, context is king. Rule number two, context is king. Rule number three, Context is king, right? Anytime you're interpreting a verse, the primary thing to help you understand it rightly is look at the context. Look at the immediate context first. If you don't find the answer, then look at the context of all of the Bible. When you look at the context of this passage, when you look at just the beginning words of verse 4, it is obvious that that word condemn cannot simply mean shake a finger at, make a public statement that sin is evil. It can't mean that. Because suddenly the whole logical flow falls apart. There is no way that God saying, I don't like sin, makes you and I right with Him. And so because of the context, we cannot take that argument. Um, there are religious liberals, mainline denominations. They, they've been taking this argument for a long time. This is what they say the cross was about. It was a statement. It was a statement about God's hatred for sin and about His love for man. It was a statement but nothing more. Okay, and then there's the second false view that we must reject. Um, this is a view we don't find as much today as in past eras of the church, but I, I will mention it. And this is the view that at the cross, God completely destroyed sin. That at the cross, God completely annihilated sin. That that word condemn is so strong that it means that when a person comes to Christ, that person will no longer have any presence or power of sin in his or her life. It's a view called perfectionism. Okay, Perfectionism says that when you become a Christian or when you appropriate the gift of Christ into your life to a, in a proper, mature way, two different kinds of teachings there, it's perfectionism. You will be without sin. 
Now, I don't think I have to say too much about that error if you've been a Christian very long. Does coming to Christ mean that a sin has been annihilated out of your life? Of course not. Nor for Paul. I mean, we just had Romans 7, which was all about the Christian's present struggle with sin. The Apostle Paul himself talked about doing what he didn't want to do and not doing what he wanted to do. Jesus himself never sinned, but Jesus knew real temptation. The fact of the matter is this. We are not made perfect until the day we die or until the day Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. I believe in perfectionism. I believe that we will be made perfect, but it's not now. It's not in this life. Don't make that word condemn, condemn sin in the flesh, mean that when I believe on Jesus, suddenly all sin has gone out of my life. That's, that's not what happened. It's the guilt, it's the penalty of sin that Paul is dealing with here, not the power of sin, not the presence of sin. Because of what Jesus does to deal with the penalty of sin on the cross, He is just to send the Spirit into our lives to deal with the power of sin and the presence of sin. And there will come a day when the power of sin and the presence of sin will be completely gone. But the penalty of sin had to be dealt with first, and that's what's in view here. Okay, so if that's two wrong interpretations, what is the right interpretation? Friends, the word condemned in this verse means the same thing here as it means everywhere else in the pages of the Bible. To condemn something is to pass judgment on it and to punish it. To condemn something is to declare something to be evil, but it goes further. It, it is to punish the evil. At the cross, God didn't just shake His finger and say sin is bad. He actually punished sin. What God did at the cross was to bring the penalty that sin deserves, His righteous wrath, upon our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was our human nature that had committed sin, and Christ, standing for all His people on the cross, bore in His human nature all the punishment that His people deserved. Do you see how that makes sense of the two verses? Do you see why that has to be what the gospel is about? Or Paul flunks logic class, right? Logic is thrown out of the window. If this is not the gospel, substitutionary atonement, propitiation for sin, I know people in our society don't like that today. I I know they, they say God's not a child abuser and God would never do that to us. Verses 1 through 4, verses 1 through 4, it's the Bible. Now, you cannot believe the Bible, but if you say you believe the Bible, that's what it says. And if, if you're going to use reason, and Paul is a reasonable man, there is no other meaning of these words that make sense. God punished our sins upon Jesus on the cross. He was our substitute wrath bearer if we believe on Him. It's the meaning of the words. What did the law require? Absolute righteousness, blamelessness, moral perfection. The law couldn't do it. Why? Because we're a fallen people. It was weakened by the flesh. And therefore we're in big trouble. Because the law stands against us. The law is condemning us. Hell is in our future. And then here is what God did. 
God sent His Son in human flesh as an offering for sin, as a sacrifice for sin. And Jesus took all the punishment that His people deserved for them on the cross so that His Father's wrath was appeased. It was all poured out on Him so that now we can look at one another as Christians and say, there is therefore now no condemnation for us. The cup of the wrath of God has been poured completely empty upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. Our slate before God has been wiped clean of all demerits. All of Christ's merits have been accounted to us. This is what God has done. He has saved us from hell through the death of His Son. That is what God has done. And it's the gospel. It's a gospel that, by the way, is being challenged, as it always is, both inside and outside of the church. And we as a church must always believe this gospel, stand on this gospel, preserve this gospel. And I'm going to give you just one more recent example from the headlines about the gospel being challenged to encourage us to stand on it. This was recently uh, with the PCUSA. Um, they recently decided it was time for a new hymnal. And so they formed a committee to put together the new hymnal for uh, the PCUSA. This is the Presbyterian Church, uh, the Liberal Presbyterian Church. The committee uh, putting together that hymnal um, was looking at a song that we sing a lot, In Christ Alone. And they were debating whether or not to put In Christ Alone in the hymnal. They decided that they wanted to include it, but they needed to change some words. You see, when we sing in Christ alone, we sing these words. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Remember those words? The PCUSA said that too many within that denomination no longer believe this, and they didn't want it in their hymnal. And so they changed the words. They changed it to this. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Now let me ask you, is that not true? I mean, of course it's true, right? The love of God was magnified. But what they were doing was taking away any reference to the wrath of God being appeased by Christ on the cross. It was Romans 3.25, it was Romans 8.3 and 4. They, they were taking that out of the song. Now, thankfully, the authors of the hymn, Keith Geddes, Stuart Townend, they took a stand, and they refused to allow their hymn to be included with the changed words. They said, if you're going to change the words, you're not allowed to use it. We're not going to give you the, the copyright. And so the committee had to meet again at the last minute. Everything else was ready to go to press, and this put a halt to their plans. They had to come back together as a committee, and they had to make a choice either include the hymn as it's written with a reference to the wrath of God being appeased by Christ on the cross or not include the hymn at all. And the vote of the committee was nine to six that the hymn would not be included. And here's what one of the members of the committee said to explain why they chose not to include in Christ alone in their hymn books. He said this, Arguments on the side which oppose the hymn pointed out that a hymnal does not simply collect diverse views, but it also selects to emphasize some over others 
as part of its mission to form the faith of coming generations, it would do a disservice to this educational mission, the argument ran, to perpetuate by way of a new second text the view that the cross is primarily about God's need to assuage his anger. The beginning of that paragraph is exactly right. Hymnals are important as far as forming the faith of future generations. You know, we, we do our confession, right? Why? Because we want to make sure that we have a right understanding of what the Bible says. We do our catechism. Why? So that we can have a right understanding of what the Bible says. But there's something else we do. We sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to form the faith of one another, especially to form the faith of the next generation. Songs go into the hearts of little children quicker than, than these other things do. Right? So songs are important. But this person said that's exactly why they chose not to include it. Two-thirds of this committee believed that teaching the message that Christ died on the cross to appease the wrath of God against sin, they believed that would do a disservice to the purpose of shaping the faith of future generations. They did not want their children or their grandchildren singing that kind of gospel. And friends, my argument is that it's the true gospel and the only gospel, and it is under attack and therefore we ought to stand for it and we ought to preserve it and make sure it is proclaimed here. Here is the heart of the gospel. God the Father condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. Or as Keith Getty and Stuart Townend put it in Christ alone, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin, that is every sin of mine, every sin of yours as a Christian, every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Is that not what we believe? It is in the death of Christ that I live. For my every sin was laid on him. So church, let's rest in the gospel. Let's preserve it. Let's trust it. We're going to move now. Romans 8, 5 and on is going to talk about the kind, what it should look like when a person believes this and and. and let me explain that better. Romans 8, 1 through 4 is reminding us of the gospel. Romans 8, 5 and on is talking about the kind of life that results when you believe in the gospel. Romans 8, 5 and on is about the spiritual life, the life of a person who's been born again. And so it's not going to be, as always, so clearly placed on the gospel. There'll be lots of gospel there. But I don't want us to miss 8, 1 through 4. It's been worth preaching through it, all these sermons. We want to make sure we are solid on the gospel. No other message matters more. And so let's preserve it. Let's stand on it. Let's pray.